0: It's go time. You're listening live to Third Down Gamble.
1: First down.
0: Big changes with the herd in Edmonton. Let's talk about it. Hi everybody, Don Charbon along with Pat Mooney and Heath Graham. The Elks clean house within 48 hours of the season ending. Surprised, unexpected, expected. How was your reaction to this?
1: Well, we've talked about it previously and it was not really a surprise to see Brock Sunderland go. To see how extensively they cleaned up was maybe a little bit of a surprise. You've got a first year coach in Jamie Elizondo. Maybe the powers that be want to see him one more season. but. I guess when you fire the guy that brought him in, you're going to want the next group of people running the show to be able to have their guy. And I think that's what they've done here.
2: For me, it wasn't a surprise at all. I mean, Edmonton has definitely suffered this year in the fact that they did not perform like they were expected. And I think if if you watch the games in the past few weeks and see the number of fans that were actually in Edmonton, they had to do something. This, I think, was brought about by... uh, obviously the performance on the field, but even more so the issues within the organization. And and, I mean, those have been known and they've been talked about all year. And I think they had no choice but to clean the whole house so that they could start new and maybe give the fans of Edmonton something to be excited about.
0: For those of you who are not completely aware, the Elks fire their president, Chris Presson, who'd been on the job for about a year their general manager, Brock Sunderland, and the head coach, Jamie Elizondo. Alan Watt, the team's director, executive director of marketing, has been named interim chief operating officer. And they've also hired Wally Buono, former British Columbia Lion Calgary Stampeder head coach, as a consultant in the search for a new GM. And that could possibly entail help with the new head coaching position. If we look back at the timeline of the history of this whole thing, Scott Milanovic is the head coach of the Elks during the COVID year of 2020, where there is no season. He doesn't make it where he can set up his 2021 team and then he is off to the United States to go coach in the NFL. Comparable money between the two centers, Edmonton and Indianapolis. We see Dwayne Mandruziak, who's been the trainer with the team for ever gets let go, very unpopular move. They hire Jamie Elizondo, give him his head coaching chance. One of the first games that he's coaching at halftime, he says this is the worst bunch of football he's
1: ever seen in his life
0: and people start to sour on this whole situation.
1: There was a lot of excitement in one sense in going into this year for Edmonton. They had made some big signings of players. They had a new team, new logo, new branding and a new head coach. And things just kind of fell apart. It's always tough on a head coach when the fans and the media start to call for your head so early in your tenure. And I feel bad for Jamie Elizondo in that sense. But at the same time, he made a lot of mistakes that somebody who's potentially a good head coach would never make. And I think that's what cost him more than anything. To see Brock Sunderland go, there's a lot of players released that he said were not cultural fits. And I'm wondering how toxic that culture that he brought to the room was that so many players supposedly couldn't fit into his system. Now he's gone. We'll see what the fresh start looks like for Edmonton and what kind of culture they have moving forward. Certainly that's the innuendo that's
2: out there, that the culture itself is, is sour. I guess at some point, you've also got to take a look at this Edmonton Elk board. They, prior to this year, brought back Chris Preston and Brock Sunderland and extended their contracts after a year of paying them, keeping the team going, I guess, during COVID time. But at the same point, they extended things and you have to wonder, were they just not truly aware of what was going on in the organization or was it hidden from the board?
0: The board itself, I don't know how much you could know, given that there wasn't a season because there isn't much to go on. The information wouldn't necessarily be there. You'd look at free agent signings and you'd look at what the, the operation was doing. They're not there day-to-day. So they only get reports based on, and that could be any number of sources. Some of the things that really irked people, like the Edmonton Elks uh, store closed on Saturdays. Listening to the, to the turf district, there seems to be a little bit of disconnect with the team's history. And I know you, can, you have to break with that history a little bit by the name change, but you don't have to break with the people that were involved with that history, namely the players, the coaches, and you can still celebrate them as people.
2: The break that you talk about, Don, is certainly evident in, in that the previous organization had a culture of winning and a culture of excellence and held that up. And to make the change, you've got to identify that, yes, we, we're, we're going to be a new team, a new name, However, I think what they lost was that culture of excellence in the fact that the prior organization iteration as one of the premier organizations within the CFL for an extended period of time wasn't necessarily brought forward with this leadership group. And I think you still have to understand, even though the organization changed names, that that culture is important. When I think of teams that have made a big difference and turn around with their fans and engage their fans. They do it on the history of their team. I don't care if you're Winnipeg Blue Bombers, and we talk about the history of Winnipeg Blue Bombers or Saskatchewan. Some of the teams where they haven't made those connections with fans are the ones who've let go of that culture and that history. And in this organization, with the leadership they had, it seemed that they were more about themselves rather than continuing with that culture of excellence.
0: You talk about excellence and you think back to Edmonton, I believe it was from 1972 until 2009 inclusive. They made the playoffs every
1: year. That's even in a nine team league, that's almost impossible. When you mentioned Winnipeg, Pat, one thing I'll jump in on is not just the Blue Bombers, but when NHL hockey returned to Winnipeg and you want to talk about tying in past, present and future. The ownership group there that brought the the NHL back to Winnipeg really had to walk a fine line of it's a new franchise. They don't have the all of the records of the old Winnipeg Jets that are now in Phoenix, but they still have the connection with the players. Dale Howardchuck was a big part of the Winnipeg Jets past, and they made him a part of the present. Timu Solani made his return to Winnipeg and was celebrated. He was still playing in the league at that time. And that's the kind of thing that I believe the Elks have kind of fallen down on with this name change, this rebranding and the new regime. One other thing that's really curious to me, and I don't know how much the board was involved or if it was strictly Chris Press and, and Brock Sunderland. But the Elks traded Trevor Harris to Montreal. Shortly thereafter, they bring in Nick Arbuckle via trade. They sign him to an extension. And he doesn't play in the remaining three or four games of the season. We look at how quickly Harris got kind of thrust into the role in Montreal. And for some reason, the Elks brought in Arbuckle, had enough faith in him to to extend a contract yet wouldn't play him. So I'm, I'm not quite sure what happened there. It seems like a real disconnect from the player personnel aspect of things as well. You see Nick Arbuckle in civvies on the sidelines and people ask,
0: Why isn't he playing? What happened? And of all the places to have the opportunity to play, that's the third game in seven days. Your starting quarterback has been beaten up. Your backup, you've seen enough that you know he's not your starter. Why not bring in Arbuckle against the British Columbia Lions? Fresh face, new energy. Maybe that's a vibe that they needed for that game. And instead, he's on the sideline, never to be seen. Maybe there's more injury problem with him than anyone would ever allude to publicly. Maybe that hamstring just hasn't come back. I don't know. All I do know is he didn't play.
2: If that's the case though, Don, I think that that the organization should come forward and be transparent about that because really the Elks in, in the final few weeks lost a lot of, I think, their fans that would have been not... They're rabid fans or they're fans that are going to stick with the team, but those that weren't 100% sure. And someone like Nick Arbuckle coming in at least gives a glimmer of hope and maybe build something towards the future. Even if he struggles, you may see him struggle with the team around him, but I think you've got to give the fan base something to reach out to. And I guess with this uh, release of, of basically all the leadership within this organization, now it's at least got people talking about what's coming forward. And I think there's opportunity for this organization to make some choices that are going to maybe move back to the culture that they once had.
0: Well, let's touch back on Trevor Harris for a moment. If you recall, there was a time in the season where he allegedly had this neck injury. They were going to put him on the sixth game. It came out in the middle of the week, but they never put him on the sixth game. And then suddenly, within a few days, he's playing against the Blue Bombers and looking horrible doing it. And soon after, he's on his way to Montreal. Eddie Steele being pushed out of the picture, that reach is just too far. When those types of things happen, there was kind of a cold shudder around that organization. If you were
1: media, you had to be careful. I think the smartest thing that they've done this week is perhaps bringing in Wally Buono as a consultant. He has so much knowledge of the league. He has built two successful championship franchises. And I believe he's going to bring a lot to the table. He obviously doesn't have any interest in being a head coach or GM at this point in his life. And I think he's earned that right to uh, to pick and choose his path. A consultant of his caliber will be very valuable for Edmonton in figuring out how to move forward from this.
0: There is a lot to be done. They have to reconnect with their fan base, their season ticket base. They have to reconnect with younger people, whether their social presence has to change or whatever. They did so well with the Elks rebranding. That was, if anything, that was their their zenith. That's where they they hit all the marks. But since then, they've been stumbling to the point where a three-win season and no wins at home, which is just, for any franchise, is just unbelievable. Even Hamilton, when they went 1-17, won at home that season.
2: This team under Sunderman's leadership, He was hired as GM in April of 2017, and since that time, the team has actually gone 32 wins and 36 losses. It's surprising that a board would continue to extend this general manager given the mediocrity that they had.
0: I think for Edmonton, it's just so alien to their existence that they have such a losing record. They're so used to winning. They've had one prior in the 2010s that... uh, people tend not to talk about too, too much, but it, it's life. Every franchise goes through its doldrums. And I, I often teased with friends that ever since Sunderland got there, they were trying to become Ottawa West. You look at all the red blacks that came along.
2: I think it's important that whatever direction they go in, they do have someone who understands the history of Edmonton, who can bring, as you mentioned earlier, Don, the fan base back because that's where you really have to win some people over. You've got to give people a a product that they can start to get excited about. They can see development and growth in time. When you have a team that only has three wins, you know that they're probably not going to turn it around and, and be well over 500 in the next year. But you do have to see potential opportunity for growth and whomever they do bring in has to be able to do that at all levels. Uh, you mentioned before, the president is the one who does a lot of the organizational business. So you need to come up with a new business model that's going to encourage people to get to the stadium, to be excited about the team, to be able to buy gear on a Saturday. Uh, all these things matter to people. So hopefully Wally Bono understands the CFO well enough to identify people that are going to be good regardless of who steps in in the GM and the coaching position.
0: Well, we've got one for sure. Ottawa is looking for a new general manager. In Ottawa, who's going to be the new GM there? Is it Dwayne Ford? Is it not? Is it somebody that we don't know about as of yet? A lot of questions. But what about British Columbia? We also have a new owner in British Columbia. Is he satisfied with what he saw on the field? Maybe that last game of the season helped. I'm going to
2: throw one more. In Montreal, we see that, uh, you know, the the GM there, Danny Machocha. that's not his head coach. He didn't hire Kahari Jones. Kahari Jones has done well, but they certainly, I think in this case, underperformed this year too. We thought Montreal could be much better. And when a GM comes to a team, do they bring their own coach? There may be opportunities for Kahari Jones to potentially move to a new location and for Danny Machocha to take a look at bringing in his own coach, depending on what happens this weekend coming up, which we'll talk about.
0: So let's get into what happened on the field last week five games the Elks feature prominently they go to Toronto on Tuesday and play the Argonauts Argonauts band and defeat them 13 to 7 Toronto twice in that game had third and short in the offensive scoring zone and decided to gamble and didn't make it and had they kicked field goals each time this game could have gone to overtime that's how tight it was in spite of the fact that the Argos were basically using this as a tryout for a lot of players. Taylor Cornelius for the Elks goes 15 of 32 for 160, but he is intercepted three times. Antonio Pipkin doesn't do much greater. He's 10 of 22 for 111 yards and one interception. Cole McDonald goes four of eight for 45 and a pick. Nobody throws a touchdown pass in this game. The Elks score early with a touchdown score and that's the last we see of that for the night it it wasn't the greatest game to watch but having a game on a Tuesday is better than not having a game on a Tuesday
1: and we knew going in with Toronto they were looking to protect players and get people rested and playoff ready McLeod Bethel Thompson did not dress for this one We did get to see what Antonio Pitkin brought to the table. And as you mentioned, Don, it really wasn't a stellar performance for him. What I've noticed around the league this year is there's a few bright spots of two very capable quarterbacks on a team. But for a lot of teams, there seems to be a pretty significant drop off from that number one guy to the guy that's waiting in the wings. I would say Calgary... Hamilton, BC are kind of ahead of the curve against the rest of the league right now. A lot of teams are looking at second quarterback options in the offseason.
2: Absolutely. This game didn't tell us much about uh, the players that they had there. What we did get an opportunity to do is see Josh Huff make his debut with Toronto. And, uh, you know, given that the quarterbacks weren't on the game, he was at least highlighted not only by making the most catches of the game. I believe he had six catches eight attempts at him, So, uh, but he was also used on punt returns and kickoff returns, and it does make me wonder if Josh Huff will actually make it to the roster in the playoffs in a couple weeks. Is this his opportunity to do some? The other thing, and you mentioned, Don, I guess I was disappointed in the fact that I did want to see their field goal kicker, Tashiki Sato, come on and take a couple shots, and it makes me wonder how much confidence they had in his ability to make some of the kicks and the fact that they didn't go for field goals.
0: Friday night. The Ottawa Red Blacks go into Montreal to face the Alouettes. The Alouettes needing the win to keep the pressure on the Tiger Cats in the race for second place in the East. Montreal goes out to an 18-3 halftime lead and then watches the Red Blacks come back and score 16 unanswered in the second half, including a last-minute drive that starts almost under the shadow of their own goalposts and ends with a touchdown end a rare, gutsy two-point convert to win the football game for the Red Blacks in Montreal
1: 19-18. Turned out to be a really great game. A couple things stand out here for me, and one of them is going for two to win. It's not like Ottawa really had a lot, other than a loss in the in the loss column. They didn't really have a lot to lose by going for two in this one. I think it was a great call by Paul Apelisse and the team to go for it. And to give some confidence to those Red Black players that they've got the support of the the coaching staff, now go out and get it done. And if I'm not mistaken, this is the first game where Ottawa has really come back to win this season. Their other wins, generally they jumped out to a quick start. So this showed a lot of growth, in my opinion, for that Red Blacks team in the way that they were able to overcome that early deficit and put together a couple of big drives and, and come out with the win.
0: Their first win of the season against Edmonton, they had to come back to win that one. That was a defensive play, though, that got them the winning score. Caleb Evans goes 18 of 29 for 173. I found it very interesting in his post-game interview when they were talking about that two-point convert. Paul Apelis basically said, we're going to finish this drive. We're going to go down. If we score, we're just going to complete the drive. And I think the players, as you indicate, Heath, responded well to that, that gave them the confidence to go for it. And they, they got the two-point convert. As I say, fun to watch. It was probably the biggest upset of the weekend because of what was on the line. But all credit to the Red Blacks, who have been out of the picture for so long, still being competitive and still making noise.
1: And in a game that actually meant something to Montreal... That was the other thing. It would be one thing if they came out and had this kind of performance against maybe a BC or an Edmonton team that also didn't really have a lot to play for. But Montreal was still working on an opportunity to host a playoff game. So for Ottawa to show that kind of level of competitiveness and really take it right down to the wire and get the win, that's a hard-working Ottawa team.
2: The thing that stood out for me, and you've already mentioned it, but it was Caleb Evans' leadership on the final drive. Um, you know, In his interviews, he talks about, hey, let's go home happy, let's step off the field happy, and it seemed to me the players are rallying around him, and I think that bodes well for Ottawa. When we've talked before about the Elks having something to look forward to, I think Ottawa has now shown that there's some talent, they can build on it, people are going to get excited about this team, and I, for me, Caleb Evans, I think, deserves a, a legitimate shot at becoming their starter in the future
0: no sign of devlin hodges in that game and i'm thinking that that experiment is now finished
2: on the other side of the coin in this game i do think this this game certainly was a big letdown for montreal i mean montreal had a lot to play for and, and the fact that they end up letting it go in this game when you're trying to get revved up for the playoffs could impact them in the playoffs and and one of the reasons i mentioned before that maybe machocha might look at change is if they can't come through in the playoffs and 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 take a win from Hamilton now that they have to go to Hamilton this could be a bit of a turning point
0: I think back to the 2007 Saskatchewan Rough Riders who on their final home date played the Toronto Argonauts and lost 41 to 13 they wouldn't lose another game and I think sometimes when a team performs poorly at the end of the season they're more apt to listen to the coaching staff come playoff time
1: I'm certainly not counting Montreal out of the playoff picture at this point. I believe with the talent that they have on that offense, some of the strong players on that defensive line as well, it's, they're, they're still right in the mix in the East.
2: When it was clear watching the game, they did rest some of their players as well. So they did take their foot off the gas a little bit, and it, it, in this case, it cost them.
0: The late game Friday, Edmonton was in B.C., Edmonton, of course, finishing the three and seven circuit. BC did what they needed to do: jump on them early and jump on them off often. Leading thirty-four to seven at halftime and cruising to a forty-three to ten win. Nathan Rourke showed that he belongs in the Canadian Football League: twenty-three of thirty-four, three hundred and fifty-nine yards, one touchdown and two interceptions. Taylor Cornelius and Dakota Prukop shared the uh, quarterbacking in Edmonton. Combined, they were 21-35 for 210 yards, a, uh, a touchdown and five interceptions. Edmonton, had they got to an early lead, I think they would have been more competitive. But as soon as the score got away, the legs and the minds went with them.
2: Absolutely. This was a really tough slug, and, and they did seem to run right out of gas in this game. And, uh, you know, credit to BC. They came out and they played extremely well and took it to them, and, and they should have won this game, and they, they did convincingly.
1: It was a strong performance for BC that has really been struggling. They, I can't remember how many times I picked them to get off of the schneid over the last several weeks, and they just couldn't pull out a win. So this was what I was hoping to see from BC in the last game of the season, and you're right, I think it's just a real matter of exhaustion setting in for the Edmonton Elks. Taylor Cornelius was 4 of 11 for 27 yards and 3 interceptions. I, I think he just had nothing left in the tank, unfortunately.
0: The Lions go for over 500 yards. They they do break the losing streak. Seven in a row is out the window. The curious thing about this is that with the win, BC finishes fourth in the West. Had Edmonton won, they would have because they had already beaten BC earlier in the season. So that puts Edmonton, with Ottawa's win, Edmonton will have the first pick overall in the 2022 draft.
1: With a new GM and head coach to shape the future of the Edmonton
0: Elks. Moving to Saturday. Hamilton Tigercats and the Saskatchewan Roughriders in another, we've got nothing to play for here game. This one was not too, too bad though. Both teams were playing competitively on the field. Isaac Harker though struggled trying to get anything going with the Rough Riders. The Rough Riders were beaten 24-3, although Saskatchewan, Harker, 16-23 to for 150 yards. Jeremiah Mazzoli didn't have to do much more than what he did. 17-21 to for 223 and a touchdown. I think the shining light in all of this was Mason Fine coming off the bench and playing for the first time for Saskatchewan. 5-9 of nine for 64, and he led them to their only points in the game.
2: Yeah, the coach identified that this was their plan all along to have Fine come in in the third quarter. Uh, certainly watching the game, Isaac Harker was struggling, so I think it was an opportunity to see what Mason Fine was able to do and he had a good run there. We had four passes in a row that were complete to Mitchell Pickton. So they certainly showed some chemistry which I think bodes well for the future. Mason Fine and Harker are definitely I think guys that the Riders can continue with. Uh, Harker In 2019, when he played one game and he brought out a win, certainly was more impressive than he was in this game.
1: I think Jeremiah Mazzoli did what was expected of him. He kind of came in and got tuned up for the playoff run. 17 for 21, so he completed 81% of his passes. As soon as they were comfortable enough that he was feeling good, they shut him down for the rest of the game. And Dane Evans came in and, and showed admirably why Hamilton is one of those teams that has no problem going from one quarterback to the other.
0: With the win, although they didn't need it, the Ticats finish in second in the East and will host the East semi-final. Final game of the season turned out to be a barn burner. The Winnipeg Blue Bombers and the Calgary Stampeders in McMahon Stadium. That vaunted fourth quarter defense fell apart for the second time in a row. Calgary putting up 13 points against the Blue Bombers. On a last play field goal by Rene Paredes win the game 13-12.
1: A real interesting juxtaposition between the two Winnipeg-Calgary matchups this year. We all know that Rene Paredes had a chance to win the game the first time around and came up short on a field goal, gets his redemption this time, and gets the win. Now one thing that I will say about Winnipeg's performance in this one Again, much like Jeremiah Mazzoli, Zach Calaris played very limited, 7 out of 10 passes for 73 yards, led the Bombers down the field into scoring position, and had it been Sean McGuire or Chris Strevler in instead of Drew Brown, it's likely a touchdown for Winnipeg, and we're not even talking about this comeback. That being said, Winnipeg did this, let this one slip away. Calgary continued to battle throughout the whole game and had a phenomenal fourth quarter and came back and got the win.
0: That fourth quarter came off the arm of Jake Mayer, 10 of 20 for 177 yards, a touchdown and a pick. A lot of talk about the quarterbacks, Zach Clariss and Bo Levi-Mitchell, whether or not they should play, because both teams were already set as to where they were going to be the next weekend, and the school of thought, for Mitchell anyway he wanted to see what the Blue Bombers defense looked like for Claris get some of the rust off make sure he's going to be ready for that west final Mitchell 7 of 11 for 39 yards what does that do to Mitchell that's got to make him head scratch a little bit that he couldn't do anything against that Blue Bombers defense and Mayer goes out there and torches him in the fourth quarter
2: the coach it may Cause me, if I'm starting both Levi Mitchell, if he's struggling, to be able to make that pull a little bit quicker if Calgary happens to get by Saskatchewan and meets Winnipeg once more.
0: Going to have to give Dave Dickinson some pause going into Regina on Sunday. Which quarterback? And we know that Mitchell will start, but I just wonder if that shoulder isn't there and it just didn't look like he had any zip on the ball. As he said, he needs some Michael Riley special sauce on that arm to make him go I don't know if Michael's passing any out, but he needs something because he's accurate, but he has no zip and it takes forever for anything to get down the field
1: off that arm. And that can lead to interceptions if you've got a defense with some cornerbacks and defensive backs that are prime ball hawks and they see that ball coming out without that much zip on it, they are going to grab one and go the other way.
2: We also have to Recognized that Kadim Carey was not on the field, and Kadim is a, a crucial part of Calgary's offense as well. I think you know that checkdown pass, and even his blocking was certainly missed in this game. Given that he will come back, he had a chance to rest, and he's going to be back in the games that move ahead. I think that will certainly help Bowley by Mitchell as well.
0: But Mitchell, in this football game, the only pass he completed was the checkdown. That was it. He wasn't finding anybody down the field.
2: True, and it may also be a case of how much do you show before the playoffs. Do you, you go to a vanilla offense, and you just really don't show much. And it certainly was a vanilla offense.
0: It was, but what's the value in that? Why not give Saskatchewan something to think about? You can
2: play it that way. The opposing view would be, let's not show them anything, and let's not pull out some of our trick plays and things that were going to potentially help us win this game. Let's just play it even, play it straightforward so that we can put some of the nuances and wrinkles in the game that matters, which is the playoffs.
0: It's two schools of thought. You either scare them before the game or you scare them during the game.
1: Second down.
0: It's playoff time in the Canadian Football League. Two games on the docket for Sunday with the Montreal Alouettes in Hamilton. And then in the West, it's the Calgary Stampeders in Regina to play the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. For Montreal and Hamilton, it's the first time that they've met in a semifinal since 2013. And that was actually at Guelph Stadium, where they played that game. Remember the windstorm that they had, and the Alouettes trying to kick a field goal, and the ball went straight up in the air and went straight down. A famous clip that's all over YouTube. Hamilton wins the game in overtime, 19-16. to 16. That's the last time these two have met. Curiously, Patrick Levels takes it to another level and decides to spout off. He guarantees a win. Kahari Jones then goes on Zoom and tries to downplay the commentary, saying that's just the way he is. We don't take it too seriously. I hope you don't either. But I'm sure somebody has printed off that and put it up on a billboard inside of the
1: Hamilton locker room. Patrick Levels may be getting a lesson in when to keep his mouth shut. He tried it earlier this year, going into Winnipeg and telling everybody that he he firmly believed that the Montreal Alouettes were the better team and they were going to come out and show it. Winnipeg shut him down and shut Montreal down and got the win. He's coming out again now and trying to guarantee a playoff victory on the road in Hamilton against a very good Hamilton Tiger Cats team. I don't think you want to be adding fuel to the fire against a team like the Hamilton Tiger Cats.
2: No, athletes have to play with a lot of confidence and believe that they're going to win every battle. But at the end of the day, when you put up some motivational talk like that, I don't think the coach is going to be happy with them.
1: It's one thing to say to be that confident with your own team in the locker room and however you want to handle it that way. But to go out and make those public statements, I don't know if Patrick Levels is on a Marc Messier type level to be able to spout off on guaranteed wins in the playoffs.
0: And you have to follow along here for a second, but Hamilton coming into this is worried about getting to the Grey Cup because they're the host team, so all the pressure is on them. Levels comes out and says this, and their focus suddenly changes. You said, what? And now they are motivated for other reasons. And maybe that takes some of the pressure off the Tiger Cats and they play more loosely. Unfortunately, Bet Regal, something's wrong with the system and it just doesn't pop up. So we're going to go with Odd Shark, where they have the tie Cats as minus 4.5 favorites, Sports Interaction also agrees that the tie Cats are minus 4.5. Typically in
1: betting, you, you put three points on the home team. I think four and a half is a fair line in this one, with Hamilton being the favorite at home. However, if you were to go back and listen to our season preview show many weeks ago, my prediction was that it was going to be a Montreal-Winnipeg Grey Cup. So I have to stick with that. I... They've made the playoffs at this point, so I can't go away from it now. I'm picking the Montreal Alouettes for the upset.
2: For me, I think Montreal will have a good shot at this game. However, I think this game really hinges on Jeremiah Mazzoli. We've seen him do extremely well in some weeks, and we've seen him not do so well in other weeks. And they're playing at home. I think that does give Hamilton an advantage. Four and a half, I do think they should be able to cover that one if Mazzoli can play well. If their offense struggles, I would definitely say that Montreal is going to have the advantage because they've uh, both teams have good defenses, but Montreal, I think, just has that ability to put points up quickly, where I haven't always seen that coming out of Hamilton this year.
0: Their defenses are even up. The way the Montreal defensive line has turned it around, they've got great defensive backs. They've got great linebackers. Truthfully, I think the defenses are a saw-off. It's going to come down to quarterback play. And here is the whole story, I think, of this football game. It's not so much about Jeremiah Mazzoli because I think he's going to be fairly consistent. I want to know what Trevor Harris is going to do. Is he the one that's going to throw five that he did against Hamilton when he was with Ottawa in a playoff game, five touchdown passes? Or is he the guy that the last time he played Hamilton and Hamilton with Edmonton didn't do a thing? You just never know.
2: You and I are certainly on the same page at the quarterback, but I think the other thing that, that comes into consideration is, is Montreal has the top running back and I think offensive line in terms of allowing him to make some yards in this league. And he's coming up against the number one run-stopping defense. So that's another area that I think could come into play. The temperature is at this point predicted to be right around zero. So I think it's going to be great weather to play. And if that defensive line of Hamilton can step up and Jeremiah Mazzoli comes with that A game, I think they'd, they'd have the chance. And i guessing being at home, they're going to come with their A game.
1: One thing that Don mentioned was the pressure for Hamilton – to have the opportunity to play in a Grey Cup at home. Looking back to the 2019 Grey Cup, the Bombers came in as a little bit of an underdog. One thing that had me feeling comfortable watching that game, even though I was a nervous Bomber fan, was the difference in watching those two teams warm up. Hamilton came out, looked very tight, very rigid. They were the team that kind of were the expected champions Winnipeg came out feeling really loose. They were dancing around laughing and having a good time in warm-up. And once the game started, Winnipeg just carried that through fluidly. And I'm wondering if it's going to be, be maybe a similar situation this time around where Hamilton comes out with all of that pressure on them of the Grey Cup in Hamilton coming off a very successful 2019 season and a lot of expectation going in. So I think that with all of that said, Montreal comes in a little bit more easy and carries this one through. Uh, you're right. It's a very interesting matchup between William Standback and that Hamilton Tiger Cats defense. And I believe Stanback's going to be the difference maker for Montreal.
0: I still think Patrick Levels gave Hamilton a pass, that they could change their focus, that the pressure comes off because now they're dealing with the Alouettes. They're not dealing with getting another game so they can get to the Grey Cup. That was a huge mistake by Levels. Yell it on the practice field. Tell it to everybody in the locker room, but keep it out of the media. Now it stokes the Alouettes. They've got that to live up to. Out West, the Calgary Stampeders are playing the Saskatchewan Roughriders in Regina. Since 1960, it's only the third time that Saskatchewan and Calgary have met in a West semifinal in Regina. 1963, though technically Calgary was the second place team, but Saskatchewan did host the back end of the two-game total point series. And 2007... Not a lot of opportunities between these two and West semifinals in Regina. Now they have played more often in Calgary and they have met a lot of times in the West final. Just that little piece of trivia. Plus five, allegedly, (laughs) is the forecast for... Sunday, I'm still not sold on that.
2: Even if it's close to being in the positives, I think this uh, is going to be an interesting game.
0: I'm not a fan of playing this late in November. The Riders are 1.5 favorites, 41.5 over-under. Oh, if we didn't mention it, the over-under on the Alouettes-Ticast game is 46.5. A lot of doubt about the Saskatchewan Rough Riders,
1: even though they went 9-5 and this year. Well, you look at them as a, a 9-5 and team, but where did those losses come? two against Winnipeg, two against Calgary. That's four of your five losses against the other two Western playoff teams. So it's still a tough road for the Saskatchewan Rough Riders.
2: It is, and I think you know that odd does show that people are concerned about Saskatchewan. As a rider fan, I, I am too, to be honest. The offensive line, we've talked about ad nauseum in our podcast, and I just am not sure that that line is going to protect Cody Fajardo and give him the time he needs to make some throws downfield because we know that Calgary can do that. Calgary is a quick strike offense and Saskatchewan is that dink and dunk offense and their line has to be able to dominate and I don't think we've seen that. So the 1.5 I think is a fair line. I think 41.5 is is a good line too because I don't see this being a high scoring game. All the games this year between these teams have been close and uh, I do think Calgary has a chance to win this.
0: It's really going to come down to Saskatchewan's offense and whether or not they can do something against that Calgary defense. They managed to win in Calgary, but the game in Regina where they lost on the final play of the game on a field goal, the Rough Riders' offense in that fourth quarter did nothing. I think is part of the reason why people are scared is that the Rough Riders haven't been able to put it together in the fourth quarter the way they did in
1: 2019. The one thing that may sway things in the Rough Riders' favour is that home field atmosphere at Mosaic Stadium. I believe a lot of Ryder fans will be happy that it's not Winnipeg coming in there in a playoff game this year and they're they're hosting somebody different. Uh, Calgary is a scary team the way that their defence has been playing lately as well. So I'm counting on the Rider fans in attendance to be loud and really give that Calgary offense fits and not be able to do what Bo Levi Mitchell likes to do
0: Calgary if there's one team in the playoffs that scares just about everybody it's them partly because you've got a consummate leader in Bo Levi Mitchell guiding that offense and you've got Jake Mayer who clearly is not afraid of anything when he gets on the field and that one-two combo could really spell the difference Kadeem Carey has been great this year. They've got help in their receiving core. It seems like the Stampeders who started the season at 1-4, and remember, and went 7-2 and thereafter, are the team that seems to be on the best roll going into the playoffs.
1: So if you look at head-to-head matchups, Cody Fajardo versus Bo Levi Mitchell, probably give the nod to Bo Levi Mitchell. With Jake Mayer as a strong backup quarterback, if there is any kind of struggle. If you look at defense, I think you've got to give the edge to Calgary in that one as well. If you look at running backs, Kadim Carey versus William Powell, I think the edge again goes to the Calgary Peters. The more I talk about this, the more it's looking like Calgary is going to be the favorite in this one. The two factors, the one I already mentioned, the home playoff atmosphere for Saskatchewan, Two very, very capable place kickers in this one as well. So it's a close game coming down to a last second field goal. I like the chances of the team kicking.
0: If you remember back to the last time Calgary was in Regina, Mitchell hits Marky Thambles for a huge touchdown on the opening play of the game. That knocked the crowd right out of it. It, it was sort of, if we go back to our interview with Rob Vanstone, he said, If there's one quarterback that I would put my money on in a playoff game, it's Bo Levi Mitchell.
2: We do have to give some credit to the fact that even though it's a short history, Cody Fajardo has generally played well in big games to this point. Not a long history with him, but he generally has come to play in those games. And, uh, you know, I, I do believe what Heath says, if the fans can get behind him, the atmosphere for an opposing team in Mosaic Stadium is going to be a tough atmosphere to overcome. If Saskatchewan's defense can hold on and not allow Calgary to get that fast start or make some big plays, that's what I think gives them the opportunity. And to me, that, that comes down to defense. Saskatchewan's offense just has to score enough points if their defense is holding.
0: We talk about hurdles that need to be overcome. Craig Dickinson has never coached this team to a playoff victory.
1: And has had very limited success in coaching head-to-head against his brother as well. He's got, he finally got the win in their third matchup this season, head-to-head. But you're right, uh, he hasn't had really any playoff success either. I'm going Calgary. I have to agree.
2: Well, that makes three of us.
1: So we are going to continue the pool tracker throughout the playoffs, but we can tell you how we sit at the end of the regular season. And Dini13 has solidified a commanding five-point lead in second place is our podcast own Don Charabin, and in third, our podcast own Pat Mooney. We won't continue to go down the list to see how far down I have slid over the last uh, couple of weeks. It's been a tough go, but Dini Thirteen has locked in and is going to be very, very tough to catch through the throughout the playoffs. Third down. When it's postseason, you know
0: it's player award time, and we have a plethora of amazing talent that is up for nomination across the league in the Canadian Football League. And we're just gonna put our hand into the bowl and see if we can come up with some names that we think may make the finals. From the East, who do you think the nominee
1: is, Heath, for Rookie and Special Teams? For Rookie of the Year, I'm going with the Montreal Alouettes kicker, David Cote. I think he's had a phenomenal debut season. Not quite to the same caliber as Lewis Ward in 2019, but a very solid year. And I believe a no-brainer for special teams from the East, Devontae Dedman from the Ottawa Redblacks, Premier kick returner in the league right now.
2: I, I absolutely have to agree on Devontae Dedman. I think he's going to probably be an unanimous choice coming out of the East. But for rookie, I, I stayed with Ottawa on this one and went with uh, Ryan Davis, the receiver.
0: I'm with you, Pat. I think it's going to be both Red Blacks, Ryan Davis is rookie and Devontae Dedman as special teams. And it, it is a no-brainer. Devontae Dedman was by far and away the best special teams player in the league. Let's move up to
1: offensive lineman and Canadian in the East. Heath. Offensive line, I have to go with the team that has the best running game in the league, the Montreal Alouettes. And for that reason, I am taking Landon Rice as the offensive lineman, for top Canadian in the East, a player that really impressed me and I think has a very bright future from the Toronto Argonauts, Curly Gittens Jr.
2: Pat? Well, that makes uh, us unanimous on this one, Heath, because that's exactly who I chose as well. Landon Rice just received an extension and certainly is worthy of it there. And uh, Gittens Jr. I think had an outstanding year.
0: Offensive line, I'm going to go off the board a little bit. I'm going to go with Toronto and Brandon Revenberg because of what the Argonauts were able to do on offense this year. Canadian, I have to agree, Curly Gittins has had a phenomenal year with the Argonauts, and it's just almost a no-brainer that he should come out of the East. Defense
1: and MOP. Heath. Tough to shy away from either one of these two picks with the defensive player Simone Lawrence from the Hamilton Tiger Cats and the best running back this year in the league by far as MOP from the Montreal Alouettes, William Stanback.
0: Pat. It
2: looks like we are going to pick the same here once again. I certainly considered Dexter McCoy with Toronto, but uh, I think it's hard to overlook the body of work by Simone Lawrence. He's outstanding. And, and William Stanback is the premier running back in the league, no, hands down.
0: I think it's unanimous. Although... Uh, I think there's going to be a lot of votes for Simone Lawrence's MOP representative from the East. Definitely he'll be defensive, and I agree. I think William Stanback overall, although let's not forget Devontae Dedman. Had he not been injured, what kind of numbers would he have put up ultimately? Three touchdowns on returns this year. It's pretty phenomenal. But I will finally settle on the Alouettes' William Stanback. Let's move over to the West where we have five teams from
1: whom to choose. Let's go with rookie and special teams, Heath. Rookie of the year, I think he had a phenomenal year with the BC Lions, Jordan Williams. And a bit of a tougher one for me on special teams this year. Nobody really leapt off the page at me, but I'm going with dependable Rennie Paradis from the Calgary Stampeders.
0: Pat.
2: You and I must be looking at the same book because Jordan Williams, I think, was outstanding this year. And and I think he should take the league one, to be honest, as Rookie of the Year. And I also picked Renee Paradis.
0: We'll make it unanimous on rookie Jordan Williams. I I totally agree. Had the best season of any rookie out West. But I am going to move away from Paradis, and I'm going to go with Brett Lowther, and partly because he had to pick up the punting chores. Well, the, the game in Calgary, for sure. And doing dual duty puts him a little bit higher in my stead. His percentage was fantastic in terms of his field goal kicking. And he was clutching the final minute. Let's go with offensive
1: lineman and Canadian. Heath? Offensive lineman, this guy is a past winner and just a complete standout from the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, Stanley Bryant. Canadian, again, a little bit tougher for me in this one, but I'm going with Bola Combo from the BC Lions. Pat. Pat's copying my notes once again I think I absolutely am and I think you gotta ask me first so it looks like
2: Heath is copying my notes (laughs) because those are exactly my two I don't know how you cannot pick Stanley Bryant he's an outstanding offensive lineman again if I look at the league I think he should have the league award overall and uh, Bola Combo I think has been outstanding you always hear his name in every BC game he's always in the play and making the big plays when it counts
0: I will not argue with Stanley Bryant, but I will move to Micah Tights of the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. I think he's had a phenomenal year. Uh, Pat, I do believe you're copying Heath, so you go to the corner and think about it for a while. <laughs> Let's go to... <laughs> defense and <laughs> MOP. May I go first? Okay, we'll see if who's copying whom now. <laughs> okay,
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now I'm going to see if uh, Heath happens to copy me because I'm going with two Winnipeg players here. I think Zach Caleros is going to be the MOP for the West and uh, Adam Big Hill. I don't know how you don't pick a Winnipeg Blue Bomber in this position for this award.
1: It's interesting when we had Rob Vanstone on and we talked about MOP, we're going back almost a month ago And we had pretty much settled on William Standback and Zach Caleros as the runaway favorites at that point. And nothing over the last month has changed my opinion on that. Zach Caleros certainly is the MOP for the West. And even though it was tough to get out of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers as the most outstanding defensive player, as we've mentioned, Jeff Coat, Jefferson, Brandon Alexander could have also easily been nominees for Winnipeg, and you wouldn't have questioned any of those picks. And not to take away from some of the other outstanding players on defense this year. I think Lucius Pierfoy had a great year. Mike Rose had a big year. Bola Combo, as we mentioned, anybody from the West, but you've got to give the nod to Winnipeg on this one with the defense they've had this year. And Adam Big Hill controls the show. So he's my defensive nominee from the West as well.
0: I will agree that Adam Big Hill is the conductor of that Winnipeg defense. His leadership is just unquestioned. And he is so versatile back there. He can rush the quarterback. He can stop the run and he can play safety if need be. I don't know of any linebacker that I've ever seen that could do all three. MOP, I'm going to go with Lucky Whitehead. Had it not been for the broken hand, I think he was on his way. Even after he had the broken hand, he still gutted it out, went out there and played and was a tremendous difference maker when he was on the field.
1: All right. We'll readdress this once the league finalizes their candidates and we'll see how we did and, and who we think is going to take home the hardware. Final thoughts.
2: This is what we live for. The whole season is about moving into the playoffs and I'm very excited for these games. I think they're both going to be close games and, and outstanding games. And if I didn't have to drive, I'd be glued to the TV, but I'm going to be in the stadium. Uh, looking forward to at least being in the pluses in late November. I think this is a uh, Great temperatures both in Hamilton and Saskatchewan. So I think we'll be able to see the best of what teams can put forward. And it should be a fantastic weekend of football.
1: If you look at it traditionally, this would be Grey Cup weekend. So both Hamilton and Saskatchewan are blessed with some weather that's a lot nicer than I believe it has been when both of those cities have hosted Grey Cups in the past. So uh, I hope people take advantage of that and come out to the games and support the league. It's been a, a great season to have fought our way through the pandemic to get that product on the field and you're right pat this is what it all comes down to this is what we have been waiting for is playoff football
0: had there not been covid november the 22nd would have been gray cup sunday in regina i don't want the cfl to take solace in the fact that it's likely going to be warm in regina on sunday there's no need to be playing playoff games in late november let's get the gray cup played the first weekend of November. Fortunately, I have to go three in some hours to get to the football game, so I'm going to miss the East final. But I am really looking forward. It's such a rarity. Uh, this is only the second time that Calgary's going to be coming into Saskatchewan for a West semifinal winner-take-all playoff game. Thank you for listening to our show.
1: Third Down Gamble is hosted on Podbean. Follow us on Twitter where our handle is at Third Down Gamble. Join us again next time. The Third Down Gamble podcast. Audio worth watching.